Shalom, shalom, welcome, welcome, world changers. Tonight we are back for another night of scripture reading and uh, fellowship questions and answers. Tonight we're going to be reading Ecclesiastes uh, chapters 1 through 6. I am going to be comparing the two families of manuscripts as well with Ecclesiastes. There There are other families and manuscripts as well, but we're going to stick to two right now to make it a little bit more simple. And we're going to be reading from the Wisdom of Solomon, chapters 13 and 14, the Odes of Solomon, chapters 25 to 28. Ecclesiastes. This book is, it's almost like the Gospel of John of the Old Testament. It's almost like, or maybe even like the letters of Paul, but maybe not that. It's not, I can't, I can't put it that bad. But <laughs> maybe, uh, it's almost like the Gospel of John. Uh, in the Old Testament. And the reason why I say that is because of many things. Um, the The book of Ecclesiastes just barely made it into the canon as it is, okay? Uh, throughout the centuries, um, right from the time when they actually canonized the, the Ketuvim, uh, officially, you know, back in the second, third century, uh, even from that time forward for almost 2,000 years, there has been debates there has been Jewish scholars and Christians, all kinds of different people that say, Ecclesiastes, is it really, should it be in the Bible? Now, there are a lot of different reasons why they say these things and ask these kind of questions. And to get into all those reasons actually deserves its own video. But just to um, just to kind of give you just a smell of the aroma of a sample, okay? Like for example, um, the book of Ecclesiastes seems to have a very odd theme compared to the rest of the books of the Tanakh. Very odd theme. It doesn't seem to follow through with the theme of the Tanakh, of the of the scriptures. Um, the only uh, verse that seems to be, you know, on par, and right? I mean, something that really rings true with the rest of scripture would be the verse that says, you know, this is uh, this is basically the purpose of man is to fear God and to keep His commandments. Apart from that, and perhaps there's another little bit in there somewhere, but apart from that, there has been a lot of debate as to the authority and the posi- the position uh, in canon of the book of Ecclesiastes. Even the author th- authorship as well. Um, some people, it's commonly believed that it is um, Solomon who wrote it. Uh, some people believe that it was not Solomon who wrote it. It was a um, pseudepigraphal work. Um, other people believe that it was a, um, um, a number of people that wrote it. Uh, Grotius, uh, I think that's how you, or Grotius, I should say, uh, is I think that's the way you pronounce his name uh, from the 17th century. Uh, he argued that the, uh, the book of Ecclesiastes is a collection of different opinions uh, concerning, you know, all the, the different things of life rather than just one p- particular um, uh, person speaking. It's, it's a number of people speaking according to his um according to his way of, of looking at it. Um, and so there is a variety of views of the book of Ecclesiastes. And so 
Personally, I know that a lot of you know this. I do not. I'm not a very I'm not a big fan of canon anyway. Right? I, I'm not a very big fan of canon. I don't believe that canon is really of God. I believe that we should be reading and studying. We should know every book of the Bible. Yes, absolutely. We should know it inside and out. We should we should know every book of the Bible very well. But to put it together in a canon and to call it Holy Scripture or Holy God, like Word of God, like every single word of it is the Word of God, or to idolize it as a canon or a Holy Scripture, um, containing an X number amount of books. And typically in the Protestant world, it's 66. And it can go all the way up to 81 and sometimes even more, uh, depending on what tradition you follow. So Ecclesiastes is one of those books. There has been a number of different ways. I'm, I'm just kind of trying to pull everything out of my head here. There are a number of different ways to interpret it. Now, the Jewish people, um, as well as Christians, have found different ways of interpreting interpreting it because of its unusual content. So, in attempts to say, okay, this this should be in canon, they say, well, we'll interpret this allegorically. We'll just we'll just interpret this as uh, you know, it does is not literal, but rather you know, a, a figuratively, we'll we'll interpret this. And again, this is uh, many reasons why they they do this. Um, So for most of the history of the Holy Bible and the Bible canon, it was to be interpreted allegorically, not literally, because of those problems with it. Just to kind of make room for it, to kind of loosen the... uh, the bounds of uh, the canonized, the canonization of it. Um, it wasn't until the Protestant Reformation that it started becoming more and more literal. Uh, but then again, there was a movement um, short, shortly after the Protestant Reformation in the 17th century that brought it back into more of a figurative interpretation of it. Nevertheless, it is an odd book. It's an odd book. It says some sometimes it gets kind of odd and we'll we'll get to those things uh, as we go along but i think right off the bat every serious bible student uh should know um the history of the book of ecclesiastes and how uh reputable scholars both in the jewish and the christian world has had many different views of it even to the point of wondering or questioning its place in the canon. So that's very important to uh, to know right off the bat. All right. So uh, just before we get into this, um, in on, on TikTok, it, it's not yours, says, hi, what are you doing? Hello. Um, I am just fixing to read some of the book of Ecclesiastes. And we're going to kind of study it, getting a little bit, a little bit deeper than normal in it. I'm not going to get right into it, like you know, um, but I'm going to compare a couple of the major families of manuscripts, namely the uh, Masoretic and the Septuagint. I'm going to compare those two, and um, 
and talk a little bit about it as we read along. So that's what we're going to do. And intermittently, I will be taking questions and comments. Questions that are big comments, uh, I mean, big questions that would that takes a big answer. Uh, I'm going to leave those for later. And But the, the, uh, the more simple questions or questions that warrant a... Um, as a shorter answer I can I can take care of as we go along. All right, guys. Um, Caballero says, Shalom, Christopher. Quick question. What do you think of the complete Jewish Bible? I, re- I read Psalms 119 in that version, and I like it more than King, uh, KJV. Yeah, um, I think it's I think it's. I think it's good. It's not perfect like any other translation. It's not perfect. I don't really, honestly, I, I don't really know a whole lot about it. That's one of the only translations I have not read through, like from cover to cover. Uh, I read through several of the other translations from cover to cover. That's one I did not. However, I, I am aware that um, that particular translation what is uh, put together by one man. Um, so that can be an issue. Okay. I don't want to, don't want to spoil your fun, but I mean, um, normally a Bible translation would have like a, um, you know, a group, a team of translators that could bounce, uh, you know, it can bounce things or ideas back and forth and, you know, help each other to try to translate. But when you got something like, uh, the, the, uh, CJB that would, uh, is translated by only one man, um, that can be, um, I hate to say problem, but um, you just keep that in mind. It was translated by one man. And, you know, uh, I would, I've seen several different um, passages from the CJB. And I mean, a lot of it sounds really good. Uh, I don't have a problem with it as far as I know, but that's something that we should keep in mind. If it's translated by one man, it doesn't seem like it was that. I mean, what can one man, it's better to have a team. It's better to have a team, but yeah. Um, sounds good. Caballero. Uh, sounds good. Sounds great. Thank you. And Shalom. Welcome. As always, Mark says, Shalom, Shalom, Mark. Shalom. Good to see you guys. All right, so let's get to it. Uh, for those of you who are listening on the podcast and on TikTok, I am streaming live simultaneously on YouTube, Facebook, Twitter, Twitch, D Live. Um, over there, especially on YouTube, I can share my screen. On TikTok, I can't. Uh, so you you don't really see what I'm doing. If you uh, are interested in reading along with me and uh, watching what I'm reading. Like what I do is I put up two different um, translations from two different manuscripts side by side, and you can actually see them on YouTube when I share my screen. If that's something you want, you want to avail yourself of, just go over to YouTube. I am live right now, right now on YouTube. Okay, guys, let's do it. This is Ecclesiastes chapter one, as usual. On the left-hand side, it is um, from the Masoretic text. On the right-hand side, it is the Septuagint. Now, 
the 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 Septuagint version is the Brenton Septuagint, the, the Brenton translation from the Greek to the English. The Masoretic uh, this time is the NASB that I have on the left hand side. So let's get into it. The words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. In the Septuagint, it says king of Israel in Jerusalem. Different. Um, verse 2, futility of futilities, says the preacher. Futility of futilities, all is futility. Now, commonly in the King James, it would say vanity, as it says here in the Septuagint. Vanity of vanities, said the, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. Verse 3, Masoretic. What advantage does a person have in all his work, which he does under the sun? A generation goes and a generation comes. Oh, I'm, I'm sorry, that's, a, that's two different verses. Uh, but the earth remains forever. Septuagint says, What advantage is there to a man in all his labor that he takes under the sun? A generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth stands forever. Pretty much the same. Verse 5, Masoretic. Also the sun rises and the sun sets, and hurrying to its place, it rises there again. Septuagint, and the sun rises, and the sun goes down, and draws toward its place. Hmm. Different, the way it's worded. Uh, in the Masoretic, it says literally panting. Verse 6 in the Masoretic. Blowing toward the south and turning toward the north, the wind continues swirling around along, and on its circular courses, the wind returns. Septuagint. Arising there, it proceeds southward and goes round toward the north. The wind goes round and round, and the wind returns to its circuits. Verse 7, Masoretic. All the rivers flow into the sea, yet the sea is not full. To the place where, where the rivers flow, there they flow again. Verse 7 in the Septuagint. All the rivers run into the sea, and yet the sea is not filled. To the place whence the rivers came or come, there they, re there they return again. So there's kind of like a little bit of science in here. You got the uh, waters returning, you know, evaporating and coming, raining back. All, it's, a it's a circuit, basically. Verse 8, Masoretic. All things are wearisome. No one can tell it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor is the ear filled with hearing. Septuagint. All things are full of labor. A man will not be able to speak of them. Neither shall the eye be satisfied with seeing, neither shall the ear be filled with hearing. Similar, wearisome with uh, compared to labor is about the only difference. Uh, verse 9, Masoretic. What has been, it is what will be. And what has been done, it is what will will be done. Septuagint, what is that which has been? The very thing which shall be. And what is that which has been done? The 
very thing which shall be done. And there is no new thing under the sun. Okay, so this is different as we see. Um, it's different. Now, this verse is a very interesting verse because um, it it talks about, it's, it's very similar to the verse in Isaiah that says, um, God tells the end from the beginning. God tells the end from the beginning. If you look at the book of Genesis, the word beginning in Isaiah, by the way, is is very closely, closely related to the word Genesis. Uh, it's almost like God is saying, God tells the end from the book of Genesis. And we see hints of that um, in the apocalyptic passages of the Gospels when uh, Yeshua was talking about the end times in that, you know, uh, as it was in the days of Noah or consider Lot's wife, um, these kind of things, right? We got uh, Babylon or, you know, uh, this kind of thing talking about in, um, spoken of in Revelation. Uh, so, and the whole idea of the story of Joseph uh, compared to the story of Yeshua, what has been is what will be, according to Ecclesiastes 1.9. A very, very interesting passage. Verse 10. Is there anything of, of which one might say, see, see this, it is new. It has, it has already existed for ages, which were before us. Verse 10 in the Septuagint, who is he that shall speak and say, behold, this is new. It has already been in the ages that has passed before us. So pretty much the same. Verse 11, Masoretic, there is no remembrance of the earlier things. And the latter things as well, which will occur, there, there will be no remembrance of them among those who will come later still. In the Septuagint, there is no memorial to the first things, neither to the things that have been last, excuse me, neither to the things that have been last shall be there or shall their memorial be with them that shall at at the last time. And so here's a good example. Here's a good example about like how we should never take anything hyper literal. And we'll see this um, throughout the, the book of Ecclesiastes, actually. But this is a good example. So what does this mean? Like there is no remembrance of the earlier things and of the latter things as well, which will occur. Now, if... If Christian, a lot of Christians, like how they, um, there's there's a uh, passage in Ecclesiastes that says that uh, you know when a man dies, he's you know he doesn't know you know the world he doesn't know anything. You know if it's that if it's that literal, if Christians use the same hyper literalism as they do in other parts of Scripture on this verse, it would make no sense whatsoever, because what this says literally is that. Nothing's remembered. The earlier things are not remembered. And we know that's not true. Because we remember, even as we're reading this, we are remembering the things that have been written thousands of years ago. So it's, what I mean is it's not true in its literal sense. Okay? 
Because from age to age to age, I mean, there are things that are remembered. There is remembrance of things that has happened. There is such thing as history. So that's another example of, you know, another way of um, showing us not to be hyper-literal in our, tra- in our uh, interpretation of this. Verse 12 in the Masoretic, I, the preacher, have been king over Israel in Jerusalem. Same thing in the Septuagint. Verse 13, and I set my mind to seek and explore by wisdom about everything that has been done under heaven. It is a sorry task with which God has given the sons of mankind to be troubled. Septuagint, and I applied my heart to seek out and examine by wisdom concerning all things that are done under heaven. For God has given to the sons of men an evil trouble to be troubled therewith. Verse 14, Masoretic. I have seen all the works with uh, which have been done under the sun, and behold, all is futility and striving after the wind. Septuagint, I beheld all the works that were wrought under the sun, and behold, all were vanity and waywardness of spirit. That's different. Waywardness of spirit versus striving after the wind. I can see how this could be translated like that. In many places, the word wind and the word spirit is synonymous in the original, but striving and waywardness is is, is uh, quite different. Verse 15, Masoretic. What is crooked cannot be straightened, and what is lacking cannot be counted. Septuagint, that which is crooked cannot be made straight, and deficiency cannot be numbered. Similar. Verse 16, I said to myself, Behold, I have magnified and increased wisdom more than all who were over Jerusalem before me, and my mind has observed a wealth of wisdom and knowledge. Septuagint, I spoke in my heart, saying, Behold, I am increased, and have acquired wisdom beyond all who were before me in Jerusalem. Also, I applied my heart to know wisdom and knowledge. Very similar. Verse 17, Masoretic. And I applied my mind to know the wis- to know wisdom and to know insanity and foolishness. I realize that this also is striving after the wind. Septuagint. And my heart knew much wisdom and knowledge, parables and understanding. I perceived that this also is waywardness of spirit. There we have the waywardness of spirit again. Verse 18, Masoretic. Because in much wisdom there is much grief, and increasing knowledge results in increasing pain. Septuagint, for in the abundance of wisdom is the abundance of knowledge, and he that increases knowledge will increase sorrow. Very similar. Doodle Dude says, go read Matthew. I've read Matthew more times than you can count. Why do you want me to read Matthew? Someone says, I don't understand why you are behind Paul. Why? I don't understand why are you behind Paul. Hey, Jason, how's it going? So someone asked me a question. I don't understand why are you behind Paul? 
that's a that's a different one. I hardly ever get questions like that. It's usually the opposite, unless you mean unless you unless you mean the opposite, and you you I don't I don't get it. Um, I usually get accused of the opposite. Why am I behind Paul? Wow, that uh, that's amazing. All right. Um, Jason says, all is well. Thank you, sir. All right. Great. Good to hear. Good to hear. Just reading. uh, For those of you who are joining on TikTok, I am reading through Ecclesiastes chapter two right now. I am comparing the Masoretic family of manuscripts to the Septuagint family of manuscripts, taking it line by line. If you want to see what I'm doing, just go over to YouTube. I'm going to be sharing my screen. If you're content just watching uh, without seeing what I'm reading, then that's fine. Um, but anyway, let's do it. You guys over there on YouTube, share my screen. Ecclesiastes chapter 2, verse 1 in the Masoretic, according to the NASB. It says, I said to myself, come now, I will test you with pleasure. So enjoy yourself and and behold, just a second, I get this. It too, it too was futility or vanity. Septuagint says, I said in my heart, come now, I will prove thee with mirth, mirth as opposed to pleasure, and behold, good, and behold, this also is vanity. Verse 2, Masoretic. I said of laughter, it is senseless, and of pleasure, what does this accomplish? Septuagint says, I have said of laughter, madness, and to mirth, why do you do this? Um, or what, yeah, like what purpose do you, what purpose do you accomplish? Verse three, Masoretic. This is a longer verse. I implored, or excuse me, I explored with my mind how to refresh my body with wine while my mind was guiding me wisely and how to seize foolishness until I could see what good there is for the sons of mankind to do under heaven for the few years of their lives. Okay, so uh, Septuagint reads like this, Brenton Septuagint. um, And I examined whether my heart would excite my flesh as with wine Though my heart guided me in wisdom, and I desired to lay hold of mirth until I should see of what kind is the good to to the sons of men, which they should do under the sun all the days of their life. Okay, verse 4, Masoretic. I enlarged my works. I built houses for myself. I planted vineyards for myself. Septuagint. I enlarged my work. I built me houses. I planted me vineyards. <laughs> Verse 5. Masoretic. I made gardens and parks for myself, and I planted them in all kinds, in them all kinds of f- fruit trees. Masoretic, or excuse me, Septuagint. I made me gardens and orchards and planted in them every kind of fruit tree. Verse 6, I made ponds of water for myself from which to irrigate a forest of growing trees. 
Septuagint, I made me pools of water to, to water from them, the timber bearing wood. Verse 7, Masoretic, I bought male and female slaves and had them and had slaves born at home. I also possessed flocks and herds larger than all who preceded me in Jerusalem. Septuagint, I got servants and maidens and servants were born to me in the house and I had abundant possession of flocks and herds beyond all who were before me in Jerusalem. Pretty much the same. Verse 8, Masoretic. I also amassed for myself silver and gold in the treasure of kings and provinces. I provided for myself male and female singers in the pleasures of the sons of mankind, many concubines. If this is actually Solomon speaking, well, yeah, I... I would say so, many concubines. Um, Septuagint. Moreover, I collected for myself both silver and gold and the peculiar treasures of kings and provinces. I procured me singing men and singing women and the and delights of the sons of men, a butler and, a fe- and female cupbearers. Female cupbearers. Let me just... Kind of zoom out a little bit here. This is interesting because we have um had to zoom out. So in the Masoretic, it says, and the pleasures of the sons of mankind versus okay, so the delights of the sons of men, pretty much the same, but many concubines. It says here, a butler and female cupbearers. Butlers and female cupbearers are not necessarily concubines. That's different. Verse 9. Masoretic. Then I became great and increased more than all who preceded me in Jerusalem. My wisdom also stood by me. Septuagint, so I became great and advanced beyond all who were before in Jerusalem. Also, my wisdom was established to me. Verse 10, Masoretic. All that my eyes desired, I did not refuse them. I did not restrain my heart from any pleasure, for my heart was pleased because of all all my labor, and this was my reward for all my labor. Verse 10, Septuagint. Whatever my eyes desired, I withheld them not from them. I withheld not from my heart, excuse me, I withheld not my heart from all my mirth, for my heart rejoiced in all my labor, and this was my portion in all my labor. Right, pretty much the same. Verse 11, Masoretic. So I considered all my activities which my hands had done and the labor which I had exerted, and behold, all was futility and striving after the wind, and there was no benefit under the sun. Septuagint, and I looked on all my works which my hands had wrought, and on my labor which I labored to perform, and behold, all was vanity and waywardness of spirit, and there was no advantage under the sun. Verse 12, 
Masoretic. So I turn to consider wisdom, insanity, and foolishness. For what will the what will the man do who will come after the king, except what has already been done? Septuagint. Then I looked on to see wisdom and madness and folly. For who is the man who will follow after counsel in all things wherein he employs it? Verse 13, Masoretic. Then I saw that wisdom surpasses foolishness as light surpasses darkness. Pretty much the same in the, in the Septuagint. Verse 14, The wise person's eyes are in his head, but the fool walks in darkness. And yet I know that one and the same fate happened to both of them. Pretty much the same in the Septuagint. But this is a very interesting phrase here. The wise man, the wise person's eyes are in his head. What does that mean? But the fool walks in darkness. Now, I do not think this is meaning the obvious. I mean, because why everybody knows a person's eyes are in their head, but I think what this is talking about, because I mean, that would be ridiculous to have to say that, but I think what this is talking about is basically their perception is from their reason as opposed to their feeling. The wise person's perception is from their head, from their reasoning instead of their feeling. Verse 15. Then I said to myself, as is the fate of, a of the fool, it will also happen to me. Why then have I been extremely wise? So I said to myself, this, is, this too is futility. Now you can understand why some of the uh, rulers, uh, the, uh, the, the scribes or the uh, scholars of the Jewish and the Christian uh, world would not... I mean, this wouldn't sit very well with a lot of people. It sounds like, hey, you know, why even be righteous? Or why even why even be wise? I mean, why not just be a fool uh, the way this guy talks? Um, Septuagint, I said in my heart, as the event of the fool is, so shall it be to me, even to me. And to what purpose have I gained wisdom? I said moreover in my heart, this is also vanity because... The fool speaks of his abundance. See, so we got the added, we got some added things in here talking about the fool speaking of his abundance. Verse 16. For there is no lasting remembrance of the wise. See, again, is that true? Is it really true? I mean, Solomon, the very fact that, that if this is Solomon as traditionally purported to be, then the very fact that we're reading this is kind of against this because it is, there is a lasting remembrance of the wise. Along with the fools, since in, in the coming days, everything will soon be forgotten. 
and how the wise and the fool alike die. Now, again, that seems different than a lot of the other parts of Scripture where it talks about how the wise um, doesn't die like the fool. You know, in the book of Proverbs especially, some in the, in the book of Psalms as well. Uh, verse 16 in the Septuagint, For there is no remembrance of the wise man with the fool forever, for as much as now in the coming days all things are forgotten. And how shall the wise man die with the fool? Verse 17, Masoretic, So I hated life, for the work which had been done under the sun was unhappy to me, unhappy, or in the footnotes, um, evil, literally evil. Now we got that word in the Septuagint up here. It's literally evil. Because everything is futility and striving after the wind. So again, very similar in the Septuagint. Verse 18. I've got a question here on TikTok by Marlon. Uh, Marlon, thank you for the question. I'm actually in the middle of scripture reading right now. If you could, uh, if you could stick around, because um, I got a, I got a. Um, a schedule here that I'm doing some scripture reading first, and then I'll take questions and comments. If you can stick around, I'll gladly answer that question and any other question that you have. I do have another group with me on a different platform right now, actually several different platforms that are following along with me reading scripture. So um, I just ask for your patience and your understanding. Thank you. Verse 18. So I hated the fruit all the fruit of my labor for which I had labored under the sun, because I must leave it to the man who will come after me. Now, that was the Masoretic text. The Septuagint is pretty much the same thing on that one. Verse 19, Masoretic text. And who knows whether he will be wise or a fool? Yet he will have control over all the fruit of my labor for which I have labored by acting wisely under the sun. This too is futility. And it's pretty much the same in the Septuagint. Verse 20, Therefore I completely despaired over all the fruit of my labor for which I have labored under the sun. Pretty much the same in the Septuagint. Verse 21. When there is a person who has labored with wisdom, knowledge, and skill, and then gives his legacy to, to one who has not labored for it, this too is for futility and a great evil. Pretty much the same in the Septuagint. Verse 22. For what does a person get in all his labor and in and in his striving with which he labors under the sun. And that's pretty much the same in the Septuagint. Verse 23, because all his days, his activity is painful and irritating. Even at night, his mind does not rest. This too is futility. 
very much the same in the Septuagint. Verse 24, there is nothing better for a person than to eat and drink and show himself some good in his trouble. This too I have seen that it is from the hand of God. The same. Verse 25. For who can eat and who can have an enjoyment without him? Verse 26. For to a, to a person who is good in his sight, he has given wisdom and knowledge and joy, while to the sinner he has given the task of gathering and collecting so that he may give to one who is good in God's sight. This too is futility and striving after the wind. So it's pretty much the same in the Septuagint. Ecclesiastes chapter 3. Verse 1. There is an appointed time for everything, and there is a time for every matter under heaven. A time to give birth and a time to die. A time to plant and a time to uproot what is planted. A time to kill and a time to heal. A time to tear down and a time to build up. A time to weep and a time to laugh. A time to mourn and a time to dance. A time to throw stones and a time to gather stones. A time to embrace and a time to shun embracing. A time to search and a time to give up as lost. A time to keep and a time to throw away. A time to tear apart and a time to sew together. A time to be silent and a time to speak. A time to love and a time to hate. A time for war. In a time for peace. What benefit is there for the worker, for, for that in which he labors? I have seen the task which God has given the sons of mankind with which to occupy themselves. All that's pretty much the same, very similar in the Septuagint. Verse 11. He has made everything appropriate in his time. He has also set eternity in their heart without the possibility that mankind will find out the work which God has done from the uh, from the beginning even to the end. Now in the Septuagint it's a little bit different. All things which has which he has made are beautiful in his time. And he has also set the whole world in his heart. So the whole world uh, uh, compared to set eternity. That's in the Hebrew, probably ha'olam. Because ha'olam can mean the world or can mean eternity as well in the Hebrew. Pretty much, pretty much the same apart from that. Um... Verse 12, Masoretic text. I know that there is nothing better for them than to rejoice and to do good in one's lifetime. 
Moreover, that every person who eats and drinks sees good in all his labor. This is the gift of God. I know that everything God does will remain forever. There is nothing to add to it, and there's nothing to take away to take from it. And God has so worked that people will fear him. Now, again, I do have to point this out. It's this is another this is another good example of how not to take things hyper-literal. Because we know it's just a matter of fact uh, that many of the things that God did create does not remain forever. Okay. Um, so again, it needs to be taken into context and all, all things considered as well. Verse 15. Masoretic. That which is, is what has already been, and that which will be, has already been. And God see seeks what has passed by. And that's very much like how we read there in um, chapter 1 as well. Very much the same. Verse 16. Furthermore, I have seen under the sun... That, that in the place of justice there is wickedness, and in the place of righteousness there is wickedness. And I said to myself, God will judge the righteous and the wicked. For a time, for the matter, or excuse me, for a time for every matter and for every deed is there. I said to myself regarding the sons of mankind, God is testing them in order for them to see that they are as animals, they to themselves. Verse 19, for the fate of the sons of mankind and the fate of animals is the same. As one dies, so dies the other. Indeed, they have all they all have the same breath, and there is no advantage for mankind over animals, for all is futility. Again, we see something that, I mean, if you if you actually read this and interpret this, as a lot of Christians do in that they're just take it like really, really literal, then, I mean, that's very demeaning for someone who is made in the image of God, wouldn't you say? Marlon says, uh, sorry about that, didn't mean to interrupt. No problem, Marlon. Um, yeah, no, not a problem at all. Um, yeah, see, I, I think what we should do is when we're reading the scriptures, we should interpret it with consistency, especially within its ranks. What I mean is you know, there are different kinds of scripture, Right? There is the law, there is the prophets, there is the gospels, there's you know, there are different kinds. Um, but we should interpret it with consistency, which a lot of people don't have, unfortunately. Verse 20. All go to the same place. 
all came from the dust and all returned to the dust. And again, you see, this is someone who can say, well, see, there, you know, there's no heaven, no hell, nothing like that. It's just, you know, from dust to dust and that's it, man. Like, you know, I mean, you can you can make that argument from the from the uh, book of Ecclesiastes. Is it is it right? Is it true? No, I don't think so. But I mean, again, this is re one of the reasons why a lot of the uh, Jewish and Christian scholars say that the book of Ecclesiastes should not be interpreted uh, too literally. Verse 21. Who knows that the spirit of the of the sons of mankind ascend upward and the spirit of the spirit of the animal descends downward to the earth. I have seen that nothing is better than when a person is happy in his activities, for that is his lot. For who will bring him to see what will occur after him? Very interesting. Ecclesiastes chapter 4. The, evils, the evil of oppression. Masoretic. Then I looked again at all the acts of oppression which were being done under the sun. And behold, I saw the tears of the oppressed and that they had no one to comfort them. And power was on the side of their oppressors. But they had no one to comfort them. very similar in the Septuagint. So I congratulated the dead who were already dead more than the living who were still living. In the Septuagint, I praised all the dead and already died. Verse 3, better off, but better off than both of them is the one who has never existed, who has never seen the evil activity that is done under the sun. Verse 4, Masoretic. I have seen that every labor and every skill which is done is the result of rivalry between a person and his neighbor. This too is futility and striving after the wind. The fool folds his hands and consumes his own flesh. Now again, this is not literal either, right? I mean, who's, who's going to eat themselves? It's not literal. One hand full of rest is better than two fists full of labor and striving after wind. Verse 7. Then I looked again at futility under the sun. Very similar in the Septuagint. There was a man without a dependent, having neither a son nor a brother, yet there was no end to all his labor. Indeed, his eyes were not satisfied with riches, and he never asked, And for whom do I labor and deprive myself of pleasure? This too is futility, and it is an unhappy task. Two are better than one because they have a good return for their labor. For if either of them falls, the one will lift up his companion. But woe to the one who falls when there is not another to lift him up. Furthermore, if two lie down together, they keep warm. But how can one be warm alone? 
And if one can overpower him who is alone, two can resist, or yeah, two can resist him. A cord of three strands is not quickly torn apart. Okay, very similar in the Septuagint. Verse 13, a poor yet wise youth is better than an old and foolish king who no longer knows how to receive instruction. For he has come out of prison to become king, even though he was born poor in his kingdom. I have seen all those living under the sun move to the, to the side of the second youth who replaces him. There is no end to all the, tr the people, to all who were before them. Even the ones who, were come, who will come later will not be happy with him. For this too is futility in striving after the wind. And once again, this is very similar in the Septuagint. Ecclesiastes chapter 5. Verse 1, guard your steps as you go to the house of God and, and approach to listen rather than to offer the sacrifice of fools, for they do not know that they are doing evil. Very similar in the Septuagint. Verse 2, do not be quick with your mouth or impulsive in thought to bring up a matter in the presence of God. For, for God is in heaven and you are, you are on earth. Therefore, let your words be few. For the dream comes through much effort and the voice of a fool through many words. Okay, we see in the Septuagint, the numbering is a little bit different, but it's pretty much the same as far as meaning. Verse 4, Masoretic, When you make a vow to God, do not be late in paying it, for he takes no delight in fools. Pay what you vow. It is better that you not vow than vow and not pay. Do not let your speech cause you to sin. And do not say in the presence of the messenger of God that it was a mistake. Why should God be angry on account of your voice and destroy the work of your hands? For in many dreams and in many words, there is futility, rather. Rather, fear God. Again, very similar in the Septuagint. If you see oppression of the poor and denial of justice and righteousness in the province, do not be shocked at the sight. For one official watches over another official, and there are higher officials over them. After all, a king who cultivates the field is beneficial to the land. One who loves money will not be satisfied with money, 
nor one who loves abundance with its income. This too is futility. Pretty much the same in the Septuagint. When good things increase, those who consume them increase. So what is the advantage to the owners except to look at to look at them? The sleep of the laborer is sweet, whether he eats little or much, but the full stomach of the rich person does not allow him to sleep. There is a sickening evil which I have seen under the sun, wealth being hoarded by its owner to, to his detriment. When that wealth was lost through bad business, he had fathered and he had fathered a son, then there was nothing to support him. As he came naked from his mother's womb, so he will return as he came. He will take nothing, nothing from the fruit of his labor that he can carry in his hand. This also is a sickening evil. Exactly as a person is born, so will he die. What then is the advantage for him who labors for the wind? All his life, he also eats in darkness with great irritation, sickness, and anger. And once again, very similar in the Septuagint. Here is what I have seen to be good and fitting, to eat, to drink, and to enjoy yourself in one's labor in which he labors under the sun during the few, the few years of his life which God has given him. For this is his reward. Furthermore, as for every person to whom God has given riches and wealth, he has also given him opportunity to enjoy them and to receive his reward and rejoice in his labor. This is the gift of God. For he will not often call to mind the years of his life because God keeps him busy with, with the joy of his heart. Ecclesiastes chapter 6. Again, comparing with the Septuagint, so far it's been a lot more for those of you who are um, just joining us here. And by the way, let me see what we got here over there on YouTube. Just a quick little interlude. We have Tammy says, Shalom all. Shalom, Tammy. Welcome. Good to see you. Alex says, Hi. Hi, Alex. Good to see you. So, so far, we've seen that the Mesoretic and the Septuagint are a lot more in tune in the book of Ecclesiastes as opposed to the Proverbs. The Proverbs is so different, isn't it? It's so different. Well, let's get on with the Ecclesiastes chapter 6. Excuse me. Um, there is an evil... There is an evil which I have seen under the sun, and it is widespread among mankind. A person to whom God has given riches, wealth, and honor, so that his soul lacks nothing of all that he desires. Yet God has given him the opportunity to enjoy these things, but a foreigner enjoys them. 
I should say, God has not given him the opportunity to enjoy these things, but a foreigner enjoys them. This is futility and a severe affliction. So again, this very similar in the Septuagint. Masoretic verse 3, If a man fathers a hundred children and lives many years, however, however many they may be, but his soul is not satisfied with good things and he does not have a proper burial, then I say, better the mis the miscarriage than he. For a miscarriage comes in futility and goes into darkness and his name is covered in darkness. It has not even seen the sun, nor does it know it, yet it is better off than that man. Even if the man lives a thousand years twice, but does not see good things, do not, do not all go to one and the same place. Very much the same in the Septuagint. Verse 7. All a person's labor is, is for his youth, and yet his appetite is not satisfied. For what advantage does a wise per person have over the fool? What does the poor person have knowing how to walk before the living? What is or what the eyes see is better than what the soul desires. This too is futility and striving after the wind. Whatever exists has already been named and it is known what man is, for he cannot dispute with the one who is mightier than he. For there are many words which increase futility. What then is the advantage to a person? For who knows what good, what is good for a person during his lifetime, during the few years of his futile life? He will spend them like a shadow. For who can tell a person what will happen after him under the sun? And again, very, very similar um, in the Septuagint. Now, um, I'm going to read a uh, a bit of the Solomon, uh, Wisdom of Solomon, also a bit of the Odes of Solomon. Then I'll get to your questions and your comments. Marlon, just hang in there. Hopefully you're still there. And we'll. I'll, I, I would love to answer that question. Um, let me just switch over here to the other screen. If there's anybody on TikTok and you want to actually see what I'm reading, if you... Uh, if you're interested in this and you want to see what I'm doing, you can go over to YouTube and and uh, and join over there because I'm sharing my screen over there. So um, this is Wisdom of Solomon, chapter 13, speaking of in... Wisdom of Solomon, chapter 13. Now I'm reading this because this is also attributed to the writings of Solomon. Verse 1. Anyone who does not know God is simply foolish. 
Such people look at the good things around them and still fail to see the living God. They have studied the things he made, but they have not recognized the one who he made, or excuse me, who made them. Instead, they suppose that the gods who rule the world are fire or wind or storm or circling stars or rushing water or the heavenly bodies. People were so delightful with the beauty of these things that they thought they must be gods. But they should be they should have realized that these things have a master and what he what he is excuse me and that he is much greater than all of them for he is the creator of beauty and he created them since people are amazed at the power of these things and how they behave they ought to learn from them that their maker is far more powerful when we realize how vast and beautiful the creation is, we are learning about the Creator at the same time. But maybe we are too harsh with these. After all, they, they may have really wanted to find God, but couldn't. Surrounded by God's works, they keep on looking at them until they are finally convinced that because the things they see are so beautiful, they must be gods. But still, these people really have no excuse. If they had enough intelligence to speculate about the nature of the verse, why did they never find the Lord of all things? Notice, I find it interesting that the author here expects the people who examine creation to know about the Creator. Verse 10. But the most miserable people of all are those who rest their hopes on lifeless things, who worship things that have been made by human hands. Animal, images of animals artistically made of gold and silver or some useless stone carved by, someone's, by someone years ago. A skilled woodworker may saw down some suitable tree, carefully strip off the bark, and then with skillful craftsmanship, make from it an object that we serve, uh, that will serve some use useful purpose. He will take the leftover pieces and use them as firewood to cook a meal that he can, he can sit down to, uh, he can sit down to and enjoy. But among that scrap wood, he may take one piece that isn't good for anything. Maybe it's crooked and full of knots and carefully carve it in his leisure time, using spare moments to shape it into the crude image of a person or maybe of some worthless animal. He paints it all over with red, covering up every flaw in the work. Then he prepares a suitable place in all in the wall for it and fastens it in place with iron nails he is careful to keep it from falling because he knows it is only an idol and needs help it cannot help itself 
But he is not ashamed to pray to this to this lifeless thing without his marriage, his children, and his, excuse me, he is not ashamed to pray to this lifeless thing about his marriage, his children, and his possessions. It is weak, but he prays to it for health. It is dead, but he prays to it for life. It has no experience, but he prays to it for help. It cannot walk, but he prays for it. He prays to it for a successful journey. It had uh, its hands have no power, but he asks it to help him in business, in making money, and in his work. Wisdom of Solomon, chapter fourteen. In the same way, a man getting ready to sail on, on the raging sea will call for help from a piece of wood that is not as strong as the ship he's about to board. Someone designed the ship out of a desire for profit, and a craftsman built it with skill. But it is your care, O Father, that steers it. You give it a safe path through the waves of the sea. People may go to sea even if even if they have no skill, because you can save them from any danger. It is your will that the things you have made by your wisdom should be put to use. And so people can cross the sea in a boat and come safely to land, because they trust their lives to that small piece of wood. This was how it was in ancient times, when a proud race of giants was dying away. The hope of the world escaped on such a boat under your guidance and left the world a new generation to carry on the human race. A blessing was on Noah's wooden boat that allowed righteousness to survive. I like that. Righteousness to survive. But a curse is on an idol made by human hands. A curse is also on the one who makes it because he works on his perishable thing and then calls it God, calls it a God. Ungodly people and these ungodly things they make are equally hated by God. Who will punish, who will punish both the things made and the people who made them? And so God's judgment will fall on pagan idols because even though they are made from something God created, they became horrible things that trapped the, the souls of foolish people. Sexual immorality began when idols were invented. They have corrupted human life ever since they were first made. Idols have not always existed, nor will they exist forever. It was human pride that brought them into the world, and that is why a quick end has been planned for them. Once there was a father who was overwhelmed with grief at the untimely death of his child. So he made an image of that child who had been suddenly taken from him. He then honored a dead human being as a god and handed on secret rituals and ceremonies to those who were under his authority. As time went on, this ungodly
finally became finally it became law and idols were worshipped at the command of powerful rulers when people lived too far away to honor a ruler in his presence but were eager to pay honor to this absent king they would imagine that he must what he must look like and and would then make a likeness of him the ambitious artists who made these likenesses caused this worship to spread even among people who did not know the king an artist might not want to please some ruler and so he would use his skill to make the likeness better looking than the actual person then people would be so attracted by the work of art that the one whom they had earlier honored now became the object of their worship so all this became a deadly trap because people who were grieving or under royal authority would take objects of stone or wood and give them honor reserved for the one god one thing led to another it was not enough to be wrong about the knowledge of god they lived in a state of evil warfare but they were so ignorant they called it peace they murdered children in in their initiation rituals celebrated secret mysteries and held wild ceremonial orgies with unnatural practices they no longer kept their lives or their marriages pure a man might kill another by an act of treachery or him grief by committing adultery with his wife everything was a complete riot of bloody murder robbery deceit corruption faithfulness or faithlessness disorder falsehood harassment of innocent people ingratitude decay moral decay sexual perversion broken marriages adultery and immorality the worship of idols whose names should never be spoken is the beginning and the end the cause and the result of every evil people who worship them lose control of themselves in ecstasy or pass off lies as prophecies or live wickedly or break their word without hesitation they tell lies under oath and expect no punishment because the idols they put their trust in are lifeless but punishment will finally catch up with them for two reasons first they were in error about god when they worshiped idols and second they had so little regard for holiness that they made false statements to deceive people when unrighteous people commit sin they will be hunted down not by the power of whatever thing they swear they swear by but by the punishment that sinners deserve okay one more reading and i'll get to your questions one more reading this is odes of solomon ode 25 again the reason why i'm reading these is it's attributed to solomon now this is questionable whether you know this is uh Probably Solomon didn't write this, or perhaps it was a tradition that Solomon actually uh, sang these kind of songs, but we'll see. Read them anyway. 
as some people do, or at least did believe, if do believe that they actually are from Solomon. O25, I was rescued from my chains and I fled unto you, O my God, because you are the right hand of salvation and my helper. You have restrained those who rise up against me and no more were, were they seen because your face was with me which saved me by your grace. But I was despised and rejected in the eyes of many, and I was in their eyes like lead. And I acquired strength from you and help, a lamp you set for me both on my right hand and on my left, so that there might not be in me thing that is not light. And I was covered with the covering of your spirit. And I removed from me my garments of skin. Because your right hand exalted me and caused sickness to pass from me. And I became mighty in your, in your youth. And holy in your righteousness. And all my adversaries were afraid of me. And I became the Lord's by the name of the Lord. And I was justified by his kindness and his rest is forever and ever. Hallelujah. Ode 26. I poured out praise to the Lord because I am his own, and I will recite his holy ode because my heart is with him. For his harp is in my hand, and the odes of his rest shall not be silent. I will call unto him with all my heart. I will praise and exalt him with all my members. For from the east and unto the west is his praise. Also from the south and unto the north is his thanksgiving. Even from the crest of the summits and unto their extremity is his perfection. Who can write the odes of the Lord? Or who can read them? Or who can train himself for life so that he himself may be saved? Or who can press upon the Most High so that he would recite from his mouth? Who can interpret the wonders of the Lord? Though he interprets, though he who interprets will be destroyed, yet that which is which excuse me, yet that which was interpreted will remain. For it suffices to perceive and be satisfied, for the Otis stand in serenity, like a river which has an increasing gushing spring, and flows to the relief of them that seek it. Hallelujah. Ode 27. I extended my hands and hallowed my Lord, for the expansion of my hands is his sign, and my extension is the upright cross. Hallelujah. Now again, this is most likely the reason why that most people believe this was written after, like in, you know, after, uh, you know, after Christ walked this earth because of Phrases like this, you wouldn't, you don't see that in the Tanakh. Ode 28, as the wings of doves over their nestlings and the mouths of their nestlings toward their mouths, so also is the wings of the spirit over my head. My heart continually refreshes itself and leaps for joy. Like the babe who leaps for joy in his mother's womb, I trusted. Consequently, I was at rest because trustful is he in whom I trusted. He was greatly 
excuse me, he has greatly blessed me. And my head is with him. And the dagger shall not divide me from him nor the sword, as I am ready before destruction comes and have been set on his immortal side. An immortal life embraced me and kissed me. And from that life is the spirit which is within me. And it cannot die because it is life. Those who saw me were amazed because I was persecuted. And they, and they thought that I had been swallowed up because I seemed to them as one of the lost. But my injustice became my salvation and I became their abomination because there was jealousy in me. Because I continually did good to every man, I was hated. Doesn't that seem... That's the way it goes sometimes, right? When you do good to people, they hate you. Seems like that's the way it goes. And they surrounded me like mad dogs. Those who were in stupidity attacked, attacked their masters. Because their thought is depraved and their mind is perverted. But I was carrying water in my right hand and their bitterness I endured by my sweetness. And I did not perish because I was not their brother, nor was my birth like theirs. And they sought my death, but did not find it possible because I was older than their memory. And in vain did they cast lots against me. And those who were after me sought in vain to destroy the memorial of him who was before them. Because the thought of the Most High cannot be prepossessed, and his heart is superior to all wisdom. And that concludes our reading for tonight. Now, uh, Mar Marlon, are you still there? Let me know. Let me know in the comments if you're still there. If you're not there, I'll uh, just pass your comment or your question. Going nowhere, ask the question, do you think Adam and Eve are in heaven? It's hard to say. It's really hard to say. I know that the general the general belief is that they are. Um, you, could, you could draw conclusions either way. You could say that they are because... Um, you know, the gospel was preached to them more or less, you know, when, when God told them your your seed will bruise the serpent's head and the serpent will strike his heel. So they believed in Jesus and then they got saved and all that kind of thing. So someone can make that argument. But also, you could also make the argument um, that they were not allowed back into the Garden of Eden. If they were forgiven, why were, why were they not allowed back in, in the Garden of Eden? If they received full redemption, why were they not allowed back in? Also, uh, again, quoting Paul, um, Paul says that they're like, the like, that's the first Adam versus the second Adam. The second Adam is life. The first Adam is basically death. So framed in that way, it doesn't sound good for them. So, I mean... Who knows? Uh, we can just speculate, and I can see it either way, but um, I hope so. 
know, I hope they're in, in heaven. Uh, just say that. Um, those are my thoughts going nowhere. Going nowhere says, do you think Cain and Esau are in heaven? Um, Cain, probably not. Esau, no. Esau, definitely not. Jacob I loved and Esau I hated. Is this that's something that was right from the right right from conception? Uh, God, you read uh, Revelation. Uh, God is very strict at, at you know what He allows into you know heaven per se or the New Jerusalem if you want to put it that way. Um, nothing that defiles, nothing that's impure, everything that's that's good and lovely and holy and and, and beautiful and and loved of God. But Esau. You know, God would not allow, God wouldn't say, oh, I hate you, but come, you know. The things that he hates, I don't think that he would allow them in. Going nowhere, ask the question, what do you think of the pre-Adamite theory, the idea or belief that there were people around before Adam and Eve were created? Do you think that could be true? Um, well, let me just put it this way. Uh it says that God created the animals before the before He created the Adam and Eve, and you could stretch it by saying the animals, because you see a lot of times animals are symbolic of Gentiles. Uh, you could stretch it to say that. No, don't get me wrong. I'm not saying that. I'm not preaching that. I'm just I'm just saying that that is a theory out there. Apart from that, no. I what I think about it is it is not an ancient thing that was taught by any ancient prophet or any ancient saint any it's a relatively modern doctrine that cropped up in the in the, in in recent history and it's a doctrine i believe that was that was that was concocted to uh to account for the scientific uh so-called evidence of of a, of a very ancient earth you know, billions of years old. So I, I, I believe that uh, the, the some of the leaders in the church looked at the scientific evidence that, okay, so the earth is billions of years old. We have a Bible here that says that, um, you know, humanity is only, you know, 6,000 years old versus billions of years old, or that the creation is only 6,000 years old versus billions of years old. I think that that is a very I think that it should never have been done. It should never have been. You should, people, I believe that church leaders were looking for a loophole in the scriptures to try to account for the billions of years that's not accounted for in the Bible. Um, and that should never be done like that. Never, ever, ever, ever. You should never try to interject secular um science into the Bible and try to make it all work. It's a good, I mean, going to give it credit where credit is due. It's a good way to try to make it work. To me, it doesn't, it doesn't, it doesn't work. <laughs> it doesn't work at all. Um, so that's what I think it is. I think that it's, um, you know, another thing, another uh, name for it is the Genesis gap theory. Genesis gap theory. I don't think that they're um, when it comes to the age of the earth versus um, 
okay, what the Bible says about the age of the earth versus what science tells us, I think there's a much better way to reconcile the two. Much better than to than to interject billions of years between two verses. I think that it's a really, I, I it just doesn't, I don't, I, I don't know. It's like it, you're making a, a completely different story out of nothing. Um, what I what I believe could could have happened, and that is that science has not accounted for the changes of the Earth's atmosphere and conditions um, and environment that happened at the flood. The Book of Jubilees put it this way. Uh, in the Book of Jubilees, it says Noah's flood actually changed the entire nature of the Earth. Now, again, I played this video. If you go on YouTube, you search for carbon dating. Uh, I think the top result would be this guy explaining carbon dating. At the end of the video, he said, um, you know, since the industrial age began and since now we're pumping all this carbon into the air and all, you know, the carbon footprint and all that kind of stuff, right? He says, he said, uh, you know, future generations are not going to be able to date anything properly previous to you know, previous to this age, to this, to the industrial age, uh, because of how we messed up the atmosphere so much. Therefore, the dating methods of science is completely thrown, thrown off because of our carbon footprint. I mean, if the, if date, if, if the scientific dating methods are that frivolous, if they are that sensitive then what did the flood of Noah do? What about volcanoes that erupt that, 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 I mean, there has been some in history. If, if cars driving around in the streets will, you know, completely throw a monkey wrench into the dating, the scientific dating system of the future, if that's how fragile it is, what about a huge volcano erupting that that's happened before in history? What about the flood? Um, that had, I mean, put it this way, 200 years ago, before the carbon footprint thing happened, okay, uh, 200 years ago, compared to today, as far as the atmosphere of the earth, not a whole lot has changed. Compared to Noah's flood, People lived to be about a thousand years old or up to a thousand years old. And then after the flood, it wasn't long. They were only a hundred years old. Like it knocked, excuse me, knocked 90. 90% of their life expectancy was knocked, knocked off. 90% of the life expectancy of the human race was cut off. That's a huge, huge change in the earth's environment and its atmosphere, huge. We haven't seen anything even close to that in the past two, 300 years. Therefore, I believe that it there, again, am I certain? Who can be certain? However, I think there's a good possibility that because of changes in the earth's um, environment like that, um, 
atmosphere, nature, as the uh, Book of Jubilees puts it, because of such changes, it could have thrown off everything so badly. It might only be 5,500 years old, but it comes out as 5 billion years old. And then people would say, well, what about the sedimentary layers? What about this? What about that? What about other things that talking, you know, apart from carbon dating? Hey, again, there are a couple different ways of explaining it, which is much better than the pre-Adamite theory or much better than the um, Genesis gap theory. For example, um, God creates everything with age anyway. When God created Adam, I don't think he created a, a one-cell fetus. Okay, I believe he created a full-grown man. I believe if we took a group of scientists and put them in a time machine and took them back to the days of Adam, when Adam was first created, day one, and say, doctors, do your medical genius on this particular man, you know, and find out what, what his age is. I think that they would come up with an age like maybe in the 30s, 40s, whatever, um, maybe even 20s. I don't know. I don't think they're going to look at the the, the full-grown man and say, yeah, he's zero days old. My point is this. I think that God creates things with age. If he didn't, I don't think it would work. Just like Adam and Eve, or Adam especially, would not be able to survive if he was created just as a one-cell organism without a womb, without an umbilical cord, without, <laughs> without you know what I'm saying? It ha he had to have been created with age. That brings me to another point. Now, the first four days of Genesis, it may or may not be 24-hour days. Don't get me wrong. It may be 24-hour days. Don't get me wrong. God's, God can do whatever he wants. I mean, what if he wanted to do 24-hour days, he could. But here's the thing. Before the sun was created, before, the, before it says that there were things set in the heaven, like lights, like sun and moon and stars, that would tell that, that, that's able to measure time, then what do you think, like, how long was a day before it was able to be measured, before there was any ability to measure it, before there was a way to, to tell how many minutes or hours there was. That day could have been a billion years. It could have been because it wasn't measured. And we know those days didn't necessarily correspond to 24-hour days either because that was even before the sun was, was, was shining. That was a, a day is a period of light or, or a period of time. And as God spoke, that would, that would constitute light right there. His word is light. You don't need a sun. You don't need the sun to have light. And, you know, in the first three, four days, there was no uh, sunlight anyway, according to, uh, according to Genesis. So, um, yeah, and there, there's a lot more to it as well. Um, there's a lot more to, uh, to that whole idea as well. The first time I ever heard that um, preached actually was in a, uh, I went to a Bible school and I heard, uh, I heard that being taught and I was like floored. I'm like, you can't, what are you, 
Like, what in the world do you think you're talking about? Like, uh, all these things that they come, um, all these things they come up with, I'm thinking, man, that doesn't work. It just doesn't work. Say, well, God said to Adam, you know, be uh, be fruitful, uh, be fruitful, and replenish the earth. Well, that means that it was already plenished before, but then it had to be replenished. It's like, give me, oh yeah, 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 yeah. Like you're taking. First of all, it's bad English. Let alone that you don't even did, uh, delve into the Hebrew. It's not even uh, Genesis wasn't even written in, in English anyway. It's like saying, well. Uh, it says in the book of Revelation, it's it's revelation, which means it was revelation, which means it was revelation before it was revelation. It's like, give me a break. What are you talking about? Why, why, why do that to the scriptures? Why do that? That's that's just not good. Not good. Um, yeah, I could say a whole lot more about it, but I mean that those are my uh, those are my thoughts. You know, there's this th- there's the idea too. It's like um, this is this is one of the things that, that that I heard at the Bible school as well. It's like, well, it says in Genesis one one, God created the heavens and the earth. Then in then in verse two, it was without form or void. How could He create something and, and then in not being? You know, it's like it was it was uh, it was empty and in 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 you know void. It was it's like. Again, I'm I'm sitting there and I'm thinking, you got to be kidding me. It took time for God to create something. It always takes time for God to create something. When he when he uh, split the Red Sea, it took him all night to do that. Right. So Genesis chapter one verse one is basically it's like a title. It's like God created, or like it says in Safari, when God created. It's a title. This is this is what God did. Let's let, now let's look at how it happened. And that's what we, that's what we see throughout the scriptures. It makes a statement, make a statement, and then breaks it down, and then makes another, then zooms in a little bit more, makes another statement, and then breaks that down. It's like it explains the process that went that God went through to 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 create the world it it had to have been at one point in time it had to have been formless and void it had to have been and i believe the first time it was ever form, formless and void is the first time that he created it and that was in genesis chapter 1 verse 2 thank you for your question going nowhere Maybe sometime I'll get a little bit deeper into that. I mean, that's just that's basically just touching the surface of it. But I have spoken to several people since since I've uh, actually come across that. First time I come across that actually was uh, almost thirty years ago. Actually, Alex, I suppose you're talking about the reading. Beautiful, hallelujah, amen. Again, we got lots of questions here about Genesis. 
we can talk about Genesis a lot. I don't, you know, I don't want to get into too much right now. And actually back in the, the if you uh, listen to some of the replays of some of the lives that we did when we went through these uh, chapters, chapter Genesis chapter 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, uh, those first 10 chapters, there's a lot that can be spoken. Um, a lot can be said about that stuff. But So your question is, if there was a worldwide flood, I wonder how technology or technologically advanced they were before the flood came. Um, did they have any kind of technology before the flood came and, and, it, and wiped it away? I do believe so. I, I believe, and again, we don't have all the details, but I do believe that the technology back then was more advanced than what we have today. And let me explain. The reason why I believe that is because, look, for example, in the, well, there's lots of reasons. Um, you look at archaeology and how they dug up. You can look. You, you can search for it, like ancient um, evidence of uh, running water and electricity. All this stuff. There, it, there are archaeologists that have you know unearthed um, cities and different civilizations that they believe that they did have these things, and I believe that they did. When God created Adam, I don't believe he was stupid. I don't think he, again, talk about God's creation being good and perfect and whole and all that kind of thing. I believe that Adam was the best of the best. I believe that Adam, when God looked at Adam and said, you know, after after everything was said and done, right? After everything was said and done, after God went through his process of creating Adam, then he looked at Adam and he said, it is very good. Just like when he went through his process of creating everything. Afterwards, he looked at it and said, it is very good. So I think that Adam was very, very intelligent. I think I, don't, I think that he would he would come close to at least that of Solomon when it comes to wisdom and intelligence. I believe so. Um, I don't think that he was just some, you know, caveman that, you know, that didn't know anything. That was just some like an animal. I don't think so. I think it was a, I think he was really, really advanced. Um, and think about this as well. In the book of Genesis, we have um, the city of Babel, right? In Genesis chapter 11, the city of Babel that was so... Their tech, it doesn't say technology, but God was so threatened by the power that they potentially had, he decided to come down and scatter them. Because he said in his own words, if I don't do that, nothing would be impossible for them. We're not there yet. We're not, we don't have the technology where God is so threatened that he says, hey, I better stop it right now or else nothing would be impossible for these guys. We don't have that much power yet. We don't have that much uh, um, technology. I think that the, that Babel, the city of Babel, i.e. Tower of Babel, city of Babel, I don't think it was just some, you know, prehistoric kind of thing. I think it was a very technologically advanced uh, society. Um, Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities. It says that they were so rich in, 
and um, um, luxurious. It says that their cities were like the garden of God. I don't think that God, if he, I don't think today if God came down and looked in and uh, looked at New York City or looked at Los Angeles or any other city on earth right now, I don't think that anybody could say, man, that's so beautiful and glorious. And, and it's just, it's just like the garden of God. They had it very well. They had it very well. I think that they had technology that made them, it says that one of the sins that, that, one of the things about Sodom that led them to so much sin was their idleness. I think because they had it so good, because their technology, they had it so easy. Life was sweet, very, very sweet in, in Sodom and Gomorrah. It was so easy. It was, it was so much idleness, as it says in the scriptures. And that's what led them to sin. Right? Idleness leads to pride, which leads to sin. So I do believe there was that they had technology more than likely more advanced than what we have today. Again, thank you very much, Going Nowhere, for your question. B. Gman says, Shalom. Christopher and family of Yahuwah, um, blessed to be here and learn more scriptures. Thank you. Blessed that you're here as well. Welcome, welcome. Caballero says, uh, Christopher, thank you so much for today's study. I appreciate your dedication. See you tomorrow. Thank you very much, Caballero. Blessings multiplied to you. The voice of James on TikTok says, hello, hello, hello there. And Playo123, hello. Playo123 says, we have human bodies over 10,000 years old. I would question it. I would question the... Um, the dating methods that they used on that. And if it was anything to do with carbon dating methods, I would highly, highly doubt it. For the same reason that the scientists say that we are screw, like messing up all the uh, carbon dating methods in the future, just by our, our, our uh, carbon footprint. If our carbon footprint in the past 100 years did so much damage to... Uh, the carbon uh, science, the, the uh, carbon dating science that, that nobody in the future is going to be able to date anything properly, then what do you think the flood of Noah did? Or even just a huge volcano. Great Deception says they date the strata by the fossils they find in it. They date the fossils by the strata they find them in circular reasoning uh fossils must be covered quickly and preserved or they turn to dust yeah and then we got you know we have uh i've heard the the argument as well that they have found fossils of like modern things like minor hats and things like that and they and they actually 
carbon dated a living mollusk as being, you know, billions of years old or something like that as well. I, I would just question uh, any kind of carbon dating. The, like personally, if where I am right now in, in my um, anything that dates previous to the flood, I highly question the accuracy of it. Don't get me wrong. I'm not saying that it's 100% for sure not right. I'm just saying I highly question it. Question for move says a day for God is a thousand years for us. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean that's what it says in the in the um, Second Peter and also in um, the Book of Jubilees. Now, once again, we've seen this so many times, right? In the past, even the past few months, as we're reading the scriptures, that we shouldn't necessarily we should consider it. Excuse me, we should we should consider it, but we should not necessarily take it like mathematical value. Because a lot of the scriptures are not like super mathematical about things. Um, so what I mean by that is, yes, it says a day is as a thousand is as a thousand years. Um, okay, so it could it could be a thousand years exactly. However, it could mean it could be a figure of speech as well. It could, a day could mean ten thousand. I mean, mathematically speaking, as opposed to you know, figuratively speaking, or like an allegory, you know, back in those days and in, in Bible days, they didn't have any numbers. They, like million wasn't really a number. They would just say, you know, you know, a thousand times a thousand or something like that. Um, or, you know, a hundred, 10,000 times 10,000. Once we get into, like, when we get too mathematical when it comes to the scriptures, I've seen it happen so many times, and we you tend to get into error, especially considering how much um, variance and how much uh, uh, differences we see, we see between the manuscripts as well. The Great Deception says, so was the flood 40,000 years. Sorry, brother. I'm not sure. I can't. I'm not sure what what you mean by that. Uh, one John says the book of Adam and Eve. God says that the one would come to lift Adam and Eve up from their sin in five thousand five hundred years. Yes. Yeah, I remember that. Yeah, very interesting. It's it's possible. Yeah, it's possible. Yeah, and talking about mathematical things, like uh, I would I would encourage everybody to listen to the the, the live stream that we did a few, a few months ago with Onia talking about all the dates and how many, like how much it's different manuscripts are off by so many hundred years. It's it's amazing how much we we lose. As one John says, the current Hebrew year is five seven eight two, and they claim that the Jews are missing five hundred years. Yeah, it depends on what uh, what manuscript you go by. Will Senior says, Shalom, everybody, but I'm here for the meats. Welcome, welcome. Pull it, pull yourself up a chair and enjoy the meal. Alex says, um, can you do a study on 
New Jerusalem in the millennium. I'm so confused. Lord willing, we'll do that sometime. Question for move says, uh, but God is all powerful. I don't know how he can be threatened. Uh, maybe more like he didn't like what they did. <laughs> it's just the way he worded it. I mean, he, he could have said, hey, you know what? I don't, I don't like this. But he said, if I don't do this, there's nothing can be impossible for them. Basically, they are going to have too much power. Um, that's, I mean, that's, the re that's how I read it. Kingdom concepts. I do agree with you here. Um, absolutely, the watchers taught mankind how to achieve technological advancements. Yeah, I do. I do believe so. Going nowhere. Adam, Eve, Cain, Abel, Seth, Noah, uh, all be considered Jewish. Technically speaking, no. It all depends on how you define the word Jewish. Because some people, it's like if if you just serve the God of Abraham, if you just serve God, you're Jewish kind of thing. You know, if that's the way you want to interpret it, then yes. But uh, typically speaking, I mean, in the Jewish world anyway, the, they claim um, even even in the Jewish world, it, it's uh, the definition of Jewish or who is Jewish uh, varies. I've heard uh, commonly that the first Jew is Abraham, although some people believe that uh, Jacob was the first Jew or that uh, Judah was the first Jew. Uh, so it, it, it's one of those things where that name is is got uh, so many so many definitions. This is very interesting. Kingdom concepts, Adam to Abraham, for example, were all priests. The lineage, yeah, I mean, they had to have been, especially like Abel offering the sacrifices and um, even Job. Um, you know, Job was around the time of Abraham, but um, Noah, yeah. The lineage goes from Shet to Noah. Um, then to Shem, Shem to, Aber, to, to Abraham, to Jacob. Uh, that is why Jubilees must be read in conjunction with Genesis. Yeah. Will says, if we add up the lineages starting from Adam, are we not about 6,000 years old? Yeah, and, and especially when it comes to the Masoretic, um, uh, dates, yes. Pleo on TikTok says, Abraham's son Isaac was the first Jew. Yeah, so many people with so many different viewpoints of who the first Jew was. Very interesting. <clears throat> a lot of people, a lot of different viewpoints. Okay, um... I am going to, since we've had so many nights in the past uh, week or so that we've uh, had a long night, I'm, I am going to wrap this up early. Uh, so we, it, it appears that either Thursday or Friday, um, Will will be back from Sheepdog Ministries to be with us. Um, and I'm also working on other guests as well, especially for the weekends. Especially for the weekends. So 
Um, that's what I'm looking at doing. So tomorrow we'll pick up where we left off here. Uh, Lord willing, we'll do the rest of Ecclesiastes uh, and a few, some more of the uh, Solom- Song of Solomon and also um, the Odes of Solomon. Yep, my email is right there. Okay, so um, that'll be it for tonight. As always, guys, it's it's a pleasure. Thank you for your fellowship, your questions, your comments. Very interesting. And uh, as always, you guys are awesome. And I appreciate every one of you. You guys are world changers. And I will see you again tomorrow evening, Lord willing. Again, on Thursday or Friday, we have Will. So that I'm, I'm kind of working for a weekday, kind of just like plugging through the scriptures, getting the scriptures done, you know, doing like during the uh, Monday, at least Monday to Thursday, perhaps even Sunday as well, just going through the scriptures. And then the weekend be a little bit more open for, for uh, different guests and everything to come on. All right, guys, thank you again for your fellowship and your questions and your comments. You guys are awesome. Don't forget, uh, for those of you who are new, you're listening to this, don't forget to follow and subscribe. Make sure you got those notifications on. Um, I have invited some different guests, and we'll see how it goes. If if nothing else, uh, there might be some off times on the weekend that I will be doing a live stream. So just as a heads up, it's a possibility. I'm not saying it is for sure, but it is a possibility. All right, guys. One John says, thanks, Christopher. I enjoyed it very much. Thank you very much, brother. I appreciate you. The Great Deception says, thank you. Blessings to you all. Thank you. Uh, Going Nowhere says, sorry for all the Genesis-related questions. Don't be sorry. Uh, I enjoy the questions. Uh, All these questions just pop into my head, and I want to ask them. Hope that's okay. Sure is okay. You're, you're very welcome um, to ask those kind of questions. All right, guys, as always, blessings multiplied to you guys. Alex says, thanks. Thank you. As always, I pray for each one of you that's listening, every one of you that I pray the Lord bless you and keep you, make his face to shine upon you, lift up his countenance upon you, and give you wonderful, wonderful shalom. Amen, amen. See you tomorrow night.